Now, can I get you to turn with me, please, to uh, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 16? Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 16, either in your Bibles or on your device or in the order of service. Um, the order of service has got the full passage, uh, uh, so that uh, the parts of the passage that we were supposed to read, we read, uh, but we're going to actually preach on the whole passage, so the whole uh, passage is in the order of service. Uh, if you don't have an order of service, you can scan uh, from the uh, QR codes that's in front of you. So 2 Samuel 16, uh, there's a sermon outline in the order of service there as well. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us uh, by your Spirit, through your Word. Uh, and we ask, Lord, that as we come to your Word now, that you will speak to us and speak to our hearts. And we pray in our collect that we might both perceive and know the things we ought to do, and also may have the grace and power to uh, faithfully fulfill them. And so we pray that you'll teach us those things by your Spirit, through your Word. And by that same Spirit, you'll point us to Christ, that we might be empowered through him. And we ask this in his name. Amen. As Christians, we have been saved and forgiven. Christ has paid the penalty of our sin on our behalf once and for all. We have been justified by faith, are declared righteous with God not counting our sins against us. God's wrath against our sin has been satisfied at the cross, so God is not angry with us anymore. We are no longer condemned. But that does not mean that God doesn't discipline us. Those who believe in Jesus are God's children. And God, our loving Father, sometimes disciplines us for our own good. Hebrews 12 verse 5, quoting Proverbs 3, says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Discipline may be hard to bear. The writer of the Hebrews goes on in verse 11. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We see something of God's discipline in David's life. God loved David. He was a man after God's own heart. God appointed him as king over his people Israel, a thousand years before Christ. But in 2 Samuel 11, he sinned in a terrible way. And God said to him through the prophet Nathan, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. David repented. He turned away from sin and genuinely turned to God. And God forgave David. He put away his sin. He restored his relationship. He would not die as he deserved. But God still exercised discipline in David's life. And we've been seeing the outworkings of that discipline in all the chapters since then. Last week, we saw how his son Absalom mounted a coup against him in Hebron. There in Hebron, Absalom was proclaimed the, the king of Israel. And David knew that Absalom would come back to Jerusalem with his troops to, to claim the kingdom. 
And so he fled, going in an easterly direction. Now, right beside Jerusalem, on the east, is the Kidron Valley. And then just past that, the Mount of Olives. And last week, we saw David and his supporters climbing up that mountain, on the hill, the mount. We heard David being given the news that Ahithophel, his wisest counselor and chief strategist, has gone over to Absalom. We heard him pray that God would turn his counsel to, to uh, foolishness. And then right after that, we saw him meeting his friend Hushai as he approached the summit of the Mount of Olives. Hushai wanted to follow David, but David sent him back to Jerusalem. He wanted him to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel, to collaborate with the spies who were spying for him there. And chapter 16 opens as David and his entourage have just gone past the summit. And where he does, and where it opens in verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1, he meets this guy called Ziba, the servant of Mahiposheth. Who is Mahiposheth? Mahiposheth was the son of Jonathan, David's friend, grandson of Saul, David's predecessor, as king. He was crippled in his feet because of an injury sustained when his nurse dropped him when fleeing for safety after Saul and Jonathan had died. Uh, back in 2 Samuel 9, David had brought him back from exile. He had given him Saul's estate, apportioning him to eat at the table with the king's sons, commissioned Saul's servant Ziba and his sons to manage his lands on his behalf. But now as David is going into exile, Ziba meets him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. Oh, it must have been welcome supplies for, for David and his people. But David wants to understand Ziba's intentions. He asks in verse 2, why have he brought these? Uh, Ziba avoids the real question by answering it literally. Uh, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and fruit are for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. Now the king presses him. And where is your master's son? And Ziba answers, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Now at this point, we are not sure what to make of what Ziba says. Is Mahiposheth really so ungrateful to David? And is he really so foolish that he thinks he will get the kingdom from Absalom? Is Ziba telling the truth or is he purposely bad-mouthing his master to curry David's favor? Well, David simply takes Ziba at his word and he gives him what he's been wanting all this time. He says to him in verse 4, Behold, all that belonged to Mahiposheth is now yours. And Ziba responds with grateful support. I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. King David judges here by what his eyes see and what his ears hear. And you can't blame him for that, can you? That's, that's all he can do. Though he, he does seem a little bit hasty. 
And he does seem to have forgotten the stipulation that everything must be proven by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If you ever come across someone like Zeba, someone who seeks your favor against someone else, do be careful about passing judgment too quickly, either way. Sometimes we need to make an assessment about things, working hypothesis to guide our actions. But we know that whatever we think, it is only tentative. Even King David could get it wrong. And so could you or I. A few hundred years later, God, through the prophet Isaiah, spoke of a future king from David's line. This king, according to Isaiah 11, verse 3 and 4, shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the make of the earth. One day, King Jesus is going to judge the whole world. And when he does judge, he will do so with perfect justice. For unlike David, he does not depend on what his eyes see or what his ears hear. He knows everything. And so we can be rest assured that because of Jesus, justice will be done in the end. It's hard to tell from this passage whether Ziba was sincere in his support for King David. But even if he was lying about Mehibosheth, God was still using Ziba to provide for David and his people. For God was still looking after David, even though he was being disciplined. And friends, even when God is disciplining us, his children, he is still acting for our good. He still loves us and cares for us. And even when people are insincere, God, in his sovereignty, can still use their actions for good, for the sake of his people. As David continues to travel, he comes in verse 5 to a place called Bahurim. And there he meets another man from the house of Saul. His name is Shemaine, son of Gera. And Shimei is just constantly cursing and throwing stones at David and his servants. As he curses, he says in verse 7, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. No, actually... This is quite unfair. Lah. David never hurt Saul, even though he had every opportunity to do so. If Shimei is thinking about the death of his uncle, Ishbosheth, well, David had nothing to do with it. See, Shimei is not a prophet, but he presumes to know why God is doing what he's doing to David. And he looks at everything in a very self-centered kind of way, as if it's all about him and his family. But it isn't. 
God is indeed bringing discipline to bear on David's life, but it's not for the reasons that Shimei assumes. Yet it does not stop him from verbally abusing David and showering him with curses for the perceived wrong on his family. Be careful, won't you, about presuming to read back into God's intentions. Be careful, won't you, about trying to interpret God's plans and purposes from the, the things that you see around you. You and I know the big picture of what God is doing from the Bible. But what he does in the details of anyone's life, we are not told. And we would be wise not to speculate. And we would be wrong to attack them on that basis. David was being harassed and accused by this bold fellow, and it wasn't right. David is patient with Shimei, but not so some of his men. Abishai, son of Zeruiah, uh, says in verse 9, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king refuses. He says in verse 10, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamin? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Shimei's got it wrong. David's not guilty of what Shimei is so angry about. But David knows that he is still guilty of sin. And he humbly accepts these cursings as part of God's discipline. And he hopes that God would eventually grant him relief. And if he's not going to harm Shimei, then he must patiently endure his taunts. And that's what happens, verse 13. So David and his men go along the road, Shimei on the hillside opposite, cursing, throwing stones, and flinging dust. In the New Testament, Jesus endured the curses and taunts of evil men when he was taken outside the city and then crucified. In Mark 15.29, we hear that we read that those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Ah, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. Like Shimei, these people had it wrong. For like David, Jesus was not guilty of the things they claimed. But he was indeed suffering under God's judgment. Not for his own sins, but for ours. And God's plan was that he would suffer there to bear our sin, our punishment, our curse on our behalf so that God can forgive us without leaving our sin unpunished. And you know, there may be times in our lives where you and I are unjustly cursed. 
There may be times when people scold us and we think, oh, it's not fair. I didn't do any of those things that, that you're so upset with me about. If you come across someone like Shimei, there are three things to bear in mind. First of all, God knows what the case really is. He'll sort it out. Like we saw three weeks ago, let him avenge. He will. One day he'll put all things right. We can trust him to bring about his justice in the end. Of course, where you can put things right now without doing wrong, then, then, then do that. But if you can't, it's still okay. We can patiently endure now because God has promised to judge in the end. The second thing to remember when people attack us is that we, we probably deserve the scolding, even if, even if it's for other reasons. It was Charles Spurgeon who said this, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation, and you would be no gainer by the correction. In other words, it's not as if you and I are so innocent lah, of any sin. It's just like, it's just that, like David, we are being cursed for the wrong one. So take it humbly, like David. Examine yourself and see if God is using this to discipline you and to lead you to repentance, even in an unrelated area. Like David, in his foreshadowing of Jesus, we can endure bitterness and cursing without despair on the inside, and that without retaliation and revenge on the outside. Because we trust in God, who is sovereign over all. Thirdly, remember our New Testament reading today from 2 Peter 4. If you suffer for doing wrong, for being a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler, well, that's on you. But if you suffer as a Christian, well, that's different. Like Shimei hated David, some people hate Jesus. And like the servants of David, who you, you get hit with some of those stones and dust that the Shimei's are throwing at God's king, simply because you're with him. Don't attack them back like Abishai wanted to do. Instead, rejoice, for you are blessed with the privilege of suffering with Christ. And when the glory of Christ is revealed, you will also rejoice with him. Well, King David and all his people continue to travel need to keep on going east all the way till they reach the Jordan River. They're tired. They've been walking for maybe 10 hours. And there the Jordan, the king refreshes himself with rest. And we'll see him again there next week. But meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Absalom and all the people of, and the men of Israel arrive. And David's former advisor, 
uh, Ahithophel is with him. Uh, we saw earlier he had betrayed David and taken Absalom's side. And waiting for them in the city is Hushai, David's friend. Remember, he is loyal to David. He's there to spy for him. Uh, when Hushai comes to Absalom, he says, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom is initially suspicious. He says in verse 17, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why didn't you go with your friend? And Hushai responds craftily with words that are deliberately ambiguous. You can see the ambiguity even in our translation. In verse 18 he says, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Now, Absalom assumes he's talking about him, but could he be speaking about King David? Our commentators tell us verse 19 is also ambiguous in the Hebrew. Now, one of them renders it this way, Whom shall I serve? Should not my service, service in the presence of the Son be the same as in the presence of the Father? That is how I will be in your presence. Now the first time you hear it, it sounds like exactly what our translation says. As I serve my Father, I will also serve you. But he could be saying that he's still serving David, even though he's in the presence of Absalom. Right, there's a play on words here that is lost on Absalom, who accepts his declaration at face value. And so the pretend king is fooled by the pretend supporter. We saw earlier that David didn't know Ziba's heart. And now we see that Absalom doesn't know Hushai's heart either. Their assessments are fallible. And over the next week, we will see that this actually ends up resulting in Absalom's downfall. Next few weeks. But even today, there are people who say they support King Jesus. They may bring him gifts like Ziba brought to King David, or they may seek to do him service like Hushai to King Absalom. But they are not really loyal to Jesus. And one day, they will show whose side they are really on. Unlike both David and Absalom, Jesus knows people's hearts. They can fool us, but they can't fool Jesus. And he will never be taken by surprise, even if we are. So when it comes out who these people really are, rest assured, Jesus knew it all along. So don't worry. Jesus is king, and his kingdom will not be shaken by people like that. Absalom accepts Hushai's assurance, but he still looks to Ahithophel for strategic advice. He says to him in verse 20, Give your counsel, what shall we do? And Ahithophel gives his recommendation. Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, keep the house and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. Now, he wants Absalom to demonstrate to everyone there is no turning back. 
How could you ever be reconciled to David if you've done something like that? Uh, it's the equivalent of Alexander the Great in Troy 600 years later when he commanded the troops to burn his ships because one way or another, there's no option of retreat. Absalom takes Ahithophel's advice. And so in verse 22, they pitch a tent for Absalom on the roof, that same palace roof from which David had watched Bathsheba bathing all those years ago. And Absalom goes in to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, this is actually smart advice, as you would expect from Ahithophel. Everyone knew Ahithophel gave shrewd advice. Verse 23 says, Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. It was esteemed as if it was the word of God. But it wasn't, was it? And Ahithophel's wisdom was not the wisdom of God. It was strategic advice, but in this case, it was not godly advice. Absalom took it because he's more concerned about being smart and strategic than about being godly. That's a bit of a contrast with David. Now, David does care about being smart and strategic. Right? That's why he sends spies back to Jerusalem. That's why he prayed to God to con confound the advice of Ahithophel and, 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 and sent Hushai. But he's actually even more concerned about being godly. That's why he sent Ittai and his men back. Why he sent the ark back to Jerusalem. We saw that last week. He doesn't want to try and manipulate God. We already know that he fails at being godly sometimes. We've seen that. But unlike Absalom, that's where his heart is really at. Jesus, of course, is perfectly godly. Even when it doesn't seem immediately strategic. Yet ultimately, godly and strategic, rightly understood, are not opposed to each other. Remember how Jesus' humble obedience to the Father led him to the cross even when the devil offered him a shortcut to the kingdom. Now, you would have thought suffering and death is not a good strategy. A shortcut might be better. Yet godly obedience to humility turned out to be the best strategy in the end, didn't it? Because God vindicated him, raising him from the dead, exalting him on high. And through his death, he saved millions of people from sin and Satan and hell. Nothing wrong with being smart and strategic. Nothing wrong with getting advice from clever people. But the priority is to be godly. And when being godly, when being humble and obedient before God is our priority, and when the word of God transforms our perspective, then being strategic might sometimes look quite different than if we simply had the priorities and perspectives of the world. In the meantime, unbeknownst to Ahithophel or to Absalom, God's word was being fulfilled even through the evil things that they were doing. 
Remember I told you earlier that God warned David through the prophet Nathan the sword would not depart from his house and this has all been happening now? Well, God also said to David through Nathan these chilling words. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. This is what God said to David years before, and now it's coming true. Absalom wanted to be king. David was God's chosen king. But even then, God was a true king. He never came off his throne. And God was achieving his purpose, even through this wicked machinations of sinful men. Because that's what God does. That's what God always does. We see it most clearly at the cross. Evil men conspired to, to reject Jesus and put him on the cross. And yet, even through that, God was fulfilling his purpose. Because at the cross, God punished your sin and mine by placing it on him. And through the sacrifice of Jesus, our sins have been forgiven and paid for. And even today, God's still sovereign. He still achieves his good purposes, even through the wicked machinations of sinful men. We, not, we may not be able to read off the circumstances, what God is doing and why. We don't presume to. But we know that God is calling people to salvation in Christ. We know that God is changing us into the image of Christ. And sometimes he has to discipline us in the process. And we know that God in the end will bring everything under his son, Jesus. He is sovereign and he will fulfill his plans. In conclusion, in our passage we reflected how Zeba and Shimei related to King David and on how Hushai and Ahithophel related to King Absalom. And as we did that, we saw how we are not to relate to the ultimate king, Jesus. We've already seen that we can't deceive Jesus, as Hushai and possibly Ziba did to Absalom and David, respectively. We mustn't curse Jesus, as Shimei did to David, and we mustn't attack those who do, like Abishai wanted to do for David. And we mustn't prioritize strategy over godliness in our service of Jesus, like Ahithophel did with Absalom. Instead, we are to follow Jesus in humbly obeying God, to pursue godliness even when slandered, and prioritize godliness over worldly wisdom. For we know that God is king, his purposes prevail, and even when he disciplines us, he is working all things for our good and his glory, because he really does love us, his children. So to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, be all honor and glory now 
and forever. Amen.